When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable. Bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Cynthia Nixon and Christopher Abbott star in James White. The story of a young New Yorker struggling to control his reckless behavior as his mother battles cancer. It's now playing On Demand. Coming soon on demand is Anomalisa, Charlie Kaufman's Oscar-nominated animated film, which tells the story of an inspirational speaker who becomes reinvigorated after meeting a lively woman who shakes up his mundane experience. It's available on demand on March 29th. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on Cable. The art house is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Pour a couple of milkshakes, chase them with a few root beer barrels, and get ready to hit the road for Joe Manganiello's birthday party, where we'll review the new Netflix original movie, Pee Wee's Big Holiday. Mm, Netflixy! <laughs> Are you done? Hmm, I wonder what it would sound like if Johnny Depp played Pee Wee Herman. I bet it would go something like this. No, <gasps> no, no. I will end you, Matt. Very well. Let's move on. Inspired by Pee-wee's Big Holiday, I had planned on doing the whole episode just imagining a variety of actors and famous people and celebrities playing Pee-wee Herman. 
you know, kind of like James Brolin did it in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. But from the look on Allison's face, and yes, she actually is making a disgusted face, I realize now that's not going to fly. So at the last minute, let's call an audible. Let's, uh, I don't know, let's do an episode devoted to road trip movies, I guess, that, uh, you know, you'll be able to rent or stream them at home right now. First up, though, is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable in which we highlight some notable films that are new on demand. Allison, you've got the picks. What what do you have for us this time? Well, first up is a movie that is really one of my most anticipated films of the spring. It is The Invitation, which will be on demand on April 8th. This is the new film from Karen Kusama, who did the great boxing film Girl Fight, and then went on to the less successful but bigger films, Ian Flux and Jennifer's Body. And this is her return to a more indie production. And also, I mean, her return to some very good reviews, at least coming off of the festival circuit. This is a dinner party movie, as and, and as, as so often happens at dinner parties, uh, the characters start to wonder if someone's trying to murder someone or has evil plans in place. Uh, in this case, it's about a, a man who shows up with his girl, new girlfriend to his ex-wife and her new husband's house for a dinner party that in which there are tensions, uh, tragic pasts come back to haunt people, and the main character starts to be convinced that there is some kind of hidden agenda at place in place and that his ex-wife is planning something. And it's all set in the Hollywood Hills during one evening in a nice house and gets more and more paranoid intense. And it stars everyone's favorite fake Tom Hardy, Logan Marshall Green. <laughs> Tammy Blanchard, Mikhail Hausman, and Emma Yatsi Coronialdi. It's a very good cast, and I, I do like a kind of claustrophobic, lavish Hollywood thriller. I'm so glad you're here. We've got a lot to talk about. So much to celebrate tonight. Each and every one of us is on a journey, and we feel that it's important to be on that journey with the people you love. I've heard really good things about this. I'm really looking forward to it. I've been rooting for Karen Kusama to make a comeback. And from uh, from what I've heard, this is the movie in which she does that. So I'm, I can't wait to check it out. It is The Invitation, and it is available on demand on April 8th. Also available on April 8th is Mr. Wright. This is a film that was the closing one at the Toronto Film Festival. It actually played after I left. But it is directed by Spanish filmmaker Paco Cabezas from a screenplay by the omnipresent Max Landis, who I think despite really only having written one widely film that would be considered widely successful as yeah. far as I can think of, yep. continues to be continues to work. You He's know? got a career. He's got quite a career. Um, but it stars Anna Kendrick as a girl who has gone a little manic after her last breakup uh, and then meets someone who seems just as perfectly manic as she is, uh, named Francis, played by Sam Rockwell. Uh, unfortunately, as sometimes happens, he's a professional assassin and uh, an assassin with a weird quirk in which he, he kills the people who order the hits assassin with a code as mm -hmm. they so often have uh and so it's a romantic comedy basically with assassinations gone wrong and an fbi agent played by tim roth mixed up in there uh it's the kind of movie that max landis has been writing a lot which is a genre film with a, or maybe better said like a uh a drama or comedy with a genre twist to it let's say a genre it's catchy a genre well, that's Mr. Wright, and it is available also on April 8th on demand. Dramra. 
and available. But say it enough. People are going to start saying it too. Uh, stop trying to make that happen. <laughs> Drama. And now available on demand is Kill Your Friends, in which you can wa- watch Nicholas Holt get nasty in the in late 90s fashion. It's set in London, 1997, uh, kind of at the heyday, maybe in the tail end of the Britpop era, in which uh, Nicholas Holt plays an A&R man who is trying to find the next and maybe last hit of this this whole musical moment. And he is cold, sociopathic, and prone to consuming a lot of drugs. And as the description of this film says, um, created by an industry that demands success at any price, he takes the concept of killer tunes to a murderous new level <laughs> in a desperate attempt to salvage his career. Uh, that is Kill Your Friends, and it is now available on demand. i never even been on an airplane. No. The only thing you're going to learn about yourself on a plane is that you like the honey roasted peanuts better than the plain salted. If you're really hungry, the open road is a smorgasbord of life experience. A few days on the open road was worth a lifetime in Fairville. Way I see it, Pee Wee Herman, you got a choice to make. Stick around here. I live a little. Right, we've been doing this for over 100 episodes now. you got to know how it works by now, right? On each episode of the show, we do a listener's choice review. We give you three options, and you pick the movie or TV show you want us to discuss. On SVU number 107, we gave you the options of Pee-wee's Big Holiday, the new Netflix original movie, and the first new Pee-wee Herman film since 1988's Big Top Pee-wee. Uh, Balls Out, an unfortunately named but supposedly very funny comedy, and Me, Him, Her, the directorial debut of the already aforementioned Max Landis. And you guys decided you didn't want me or him or her, and you certainly preferred balls to be kept in, because with a resounding 63% of the vote, you picked Pee-wee. So here he is, Paul Rubens back in the gray suit and red bow tie as his signature creation. Rubens is, I couldn't believe this when I looked it up, he is 63 years old. That seems impossible. Yeah. And, and it doesn't seem possible when you look at him. He doesn't look a day over, I don't know, 50, early 50s, I would say. Uh, surely if there's a fourth Pee-wee film, it will be titled Pee-wee's Big Pact with Satan. Uh, this Pee-wee film is about our intrepidly goofy hero as he ventures across America to join his new buddy, Joe Manganello, played by actor Joe Manganello, at his birthday party in New York City. Uh, Although longtime Pee-wee fans will have already seen the character make a similar journey in search of his bicycle in Tim Burton's Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the character of Pee-wee doesn't seem to have lived those experiences. As the movie begins, he's never left his tiny hometown, and impossibly, and kind of amusingly, he apparently has never even seen a traffic light in person. Uh, But when actor Joe Manganiello rolls into town on his motorcycle, Pee-wee is blown away by his charisma and his cool, and maybe a little smitten by his good looks and decides to bust out of his tired mundane life and live a little so accordingly the movie is all about supposedly getting out of these ruts that you can get in and embracing new experiences so allison my question to you is does that message seem at all at odds with the content of the movie which you watched which as directed by john lee who's a creator of the wonder shows and tv show has done a lot of tv work it looks and feels a lot like Tim Burton's Pee Wee movie from 30 years ago. So is there a conflict there or, or do you buy that message? Well, 
you know, we, we've spoken a little bit, I think, about Netflix getting into the nostalgia business yes. with things like Fuller House mm. or Arrested, Arrested Development. Development. You know, uh, nothing need ever end. Crouching Tiger. Yes. These days, nothing need ever end. Never too late for a sequel. <laughs> right. Always possible. Increasingly likely to have all of the original stars. So in that way, Pee Wee's Big Holiday is maybe the most precisely done bit mm. of cashing i don't know cashing in seems the wrong word but bit of like nostalgia indulgement nostalgia. yeah i you know it is it basically not just it doesn't just like ignore any sense of continuity it it kind of ignores it the second movie and just goes right back to what is you know widely considered the preferable peewee movie sure and recreates or attempts to recreate a lot of its charms its format it's some of the gags. Of, I mean, the opening the with the like Rube Goldberg uh, breakfast morning routine, right. very, very much in the vein of of the first movie. The kind of oddness, the episodic quality right. of, of that movie, and even like some of the oh, this part will scar your child moments. Yeah, there's a couple of those. Uh-huh. Yep. I, I I think it's very successful at this. Do I think that this is a weird? thing that now we're doing in terms of film and television production Mm. yes yes absolutely i think it is weird that suddenly what we're trying to do is recreate the coziness of our memories of a film that was made years ago Mm. that said i I feel like this does it pretty well if you're going to do that i feel like this movie you know is about as good as that scenario can get right uh I mean, is it funny that this is a movie about going out and experiencing life that then tries very hard, as hard as possible, to recreate the emotions and the format of a movie that was made years and years ago? Yes. But I don't know. For like for, for the goals it has, I think it's pretty successful. I was I was entertained. I was pleased to see the character again. I don't think that I had necessarily asked for this, but... Having received it, I was happy to watch it. How about you? Yeah, I think you might have liked it a little bit more than me. I think it's 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 pleasant. It's a nice way to spend ninety minutes. It's 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 fun, you know. But I did find it I did find it a little odd that it is a movie that is so much about. I mean, explicitly, the characters are talking about it. You know, you're stuck in a rut, Pee Wee. You need to do something new. Live, a, and it's and there's really nothing that new about the movie. Now maybe you could say the the sort of the central thing with Joe Manganello and we can talk about that a little bit more in a bit. And that th- that's the sort of new thing. And uh, I might buy it to a certain extent, but it you know that's to me that was still left a little too much maybe not in the background but more implicit than explicit. And and a lot of it really does feel like uh, almost like a cover version of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I mean, you have Paul Rubens, you have Pee-wee, and I think he still does a fabulous job. He's got a lot of energy. I mean, not only does he look great at 63, he just he still has that kind of childish, impish glee. You know, like he hasn't really lost a step. You know, it's like Nolan Ryan pitching in the big leagues into his, his 40s or whatever. It's just he doesn't seem like he's out of place in this in this colorful world and playing this childish character, it's still, he can still pull it off. And I give him a lot of credit for that. I just thought it was a bit, you know, especially when so much of the beginning of the movie is about, you've got to bust out Pee Wee. You've got to do something new. It's time to live. And I'm thinking, oh man, this could be really exciting. This movie's going to go for it. It's going to do something crazy. 
And no, it doesn't. It basically just rehashes Pee-wee's Big Adventure in a pleasant way. But I didn't really feel like it it quite lived up to the setup, the promise of that that opening act and sort of what it seems to be going for. Sure. But then I, I guess the question is, this is a character who is supposed to be permanently frozen in, you know, this kind of like Fair enough. That's, I mean, that's a fair point. Yeah. Like what? I, it's funny because Pee Wee. I don't know. I, I know. don't know what I want. Wanted, I just yeah. wanted something else, something sure. different, well, not yeah. the same thing. I understand that. I guess it's that it's the strangest of being like this is a character who started out as like basically like comedy for adults, right? right. As a show, as like a like a performance, and then was made into a Tim Burton movie that was like aimed. For children in that weird Tim Burton way. Right. Where it's... And I watched that movie a lot as a kid. Like, yeah. I didn't think of that as, boy, this guy is really subversive. It just seemed like a weird, funny, quirky movie that was aimed right at me. Right. And then it became a children's show. Pee-wee became a... Watched a tons show. of that, too. And then I... Which I I realized I've never seen Big Top Pee-wee, but was made into a later movie, which... It's I, okay. Right. I, I saw it as a kid, too. It certainly was not as good as Pee-wee's Big like Adventure. If that's often like what people have often said about that movie is that it puts him in something resembling the real world and that no one mm. wants that. Right. I mean, I haven't seen it. I literally haven't seen it probably in 20 years, so I, I can't speak to it, but I didn't get that vibe as a kid. It just seemed like a, okay, a, a, a not, not as good Pee Wee movie. I, I didn't look at it that seriously, but I was probably 10, 12. So I, right. I, looking at it again, I might feel that way. I don't know. Yeah. I, it just, I think raises this interesting question of, being like, what do we want from a character who is written to be static, right? right. That who is written to be permanently frozen uh, apart from real adulthood, mm. to be living this kind of child's conception of adulthood. And I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, does the idea of like a kind of crazy, subversive Pee Wee Herman movie intrigue me? Maybe a bit. But I feel like if this is being kind of offered up as comfort food, which I think it is. You know, I think it definitely you is. Know? I mean, I think that that's what it manages to do. Yeah. No, I think uh, I think on its own terms, it's fairly successful. I'll give you that. Like, I don't think they're trying to do something original, clearly. I just thought it was odd that that's the message of the movie. That's the theme of the movie. And that's not at all the content of the movie. But I, you're right. It As as comfort food, it's pretty successful. I would say, though, I, I mean, it's, you know, the, the episodic nature of it in this movie, you know, there's less episodes that are really fun and exciting as maybe in like peewee's big adventure like i felt like it was a little bit more hit or miss there were some of the episodes where i was like this is fine but you know it doesn't really you know deliver huge laughs like the the the, the, the sequence in amish country i loved that's a great bit well, the best part of the movie is, is the, the balloon. balloon right absolutely right and that scene and if you haven't seen it we where we won't spoil it, but if we, you know, all you know, a balloon. <laughs> spoiler alert: Pee Wee blows up a balloon and then deflates it. Uh, it's it's that's magical. That I don't know, five minute, four minute sequence, it whatever it is, it goes time. on for a long time. is pretty is is pretty magnificent. Did you feel that was Pee Wee Hermanish, or did you feel that was like? I mean, this is directed by John Lee, who did who was one of the creators of Wonder Shows in, yeah, which was an it was a show that use the format of a kid's television series for like very grown up and very dark humor. Yeah, it was kind of it was more like the original concept of Pee Wee than Pee Wee's own show was. Right. And I feel like there's an almost there's like a perversity to Wonder the Shows. In that, the, oh, the balloon the... and the balloon scene that like whereas like that feels like a real 
like one of the, like a touch from that guy. It's one of the few scenes that makes you kind of lean forward in your chair because it is. I don't know. It's not from the original movie. It's not from Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and it's so strange and and it's just like this little little perfect little unit of entertainment unto itself and it's so so silly and and it's just it's just peewee herman blowing up and deflating a balloon and it's amazing how wonderful just that is Uh yeah i mean you know this is a movie we didn't even mention but it's written by paul rubens and paul rust who is one of the creators and the stars of love right which we talked about on a recent episode And it's uh, it's produced by Judd Apatow, right? So this That's, is he's, and I'm sure he's the guy who hooked these, you know, who hooked Paul Rubens and Paul Rust up, right? But this, so this is essentially made by fans, right? Like these are this is a generation of people, right. uh, you know, Paul Rust is around our age who grew up watching those movies and that TV show, yeah. I mean, I don't like. Is there this weird? Is that what like creates that sense of like weirdness? Are you are, that, that it's almost like fan fiction uh-huh. in a sense? Fan fiction that stars the original actor. Yes, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I think you could probably make the case because it base. I mean, a lot of fa- fan fiction is taking the character you love, doing basically the same thing with them, but in a slightly different way, which is exactly what the film is. I mean, yeah, I think you could make a pretty strong case that it is um, sort of. Um, homegrown fan fiction or, you know, like creator approved peewee stamp of, of seal of approval fan fiction. Yeah, definitely. The other thing I thought was interesting to think about was sort of how Judd Apatow makes movies that are about sort of overgrown man children that are <laughs> admittedly much more sexual, much more adult in their appetites. And, and set in a more and real set in a more world. Real world. Yes. But just sort of that idea of men who never grew up. That's like his bread and butter. And so I was just sort of thought it was interesting to see that being the Sort of the connective tissue between Judd Apatow and Paul Rubens. It's the ultimate man-child who's never grown up. Right, exactly. All right, well, let's talk about the fact that this is one big gay romance. Okay. Well, you know, mentioned Joe Manganiello playing himself gamely he's like very funny he's wonderful <laughs> like he uh he's he's really it is easy to see why another man would fall in love with joe manganello yes because i certainly did in watching a delightful this delightful presence not yes. that i haven't before i mean i've fallen in love with him in many films i mean the magic oh, yeah. mike films magic, he's yeah oh yeah he's very lovable uh the uh the dance in the in the mini mart that's is right fantastic absolutely yeah. so yes he's a lovable guy but i mean this is the one element that does seem to actually dig into an aspect of Pee Wee that was never explicit, which is that you have this man dressed as a boy who like, you know, and like playing someone who is supposed to be pre kind of like adolescence, who's always a little grossed out by girls. Yeah. And they call him like a boy, like in the movie, he's very explicitly almost as if he's like, I don't know. 15 years old maybe like what if what age is peewee herman that's a good know. question he has a job he lives by himself right but he's also called like what is it like the best boy in town uh-huh. so, someone the says boy the nicest boy in town mm-hmm. right there's this implication that he is he's not 63 years old like paul rubens right he's caught in between he's li- yes. like that's I, I think it is like he's living like a child's idea of an adult life of how that that's works perfectly put uh but you know, that, that Pee-wee has never seemed like someone who is about to... He is like someone who has managed to be both too young to have a romantic relationship and too old, you know, for yeah. like the romantic relationships that are set up like as potential for him in movies right. at the same time. Yes. And 
and this is the movie that finally says like maybe he doesn't need a romantic relationship with a woman with a woman yes yeah and then maybe what he's been looking for this whole time and like sublimating is his desire to have a romantic relationship yeah with an extraordinarily handsome hollywood actor look if you're gonna have a relationship (laughs) with a with a guy joe manganello is a pretty a pretty good one to bring it out of you because you know he is rugged and handsome and charming and you know, he likes root beer barrels. I, I honestly, I, I liked all of that stuff. I, I, I wish the movie went further, to be honest with you. How much further? I don't know. A little further. Okay. I mean, like, I feel like it doesn't, it's not very, like, subtle with what no, it's, it's coding. I mean, no. like, the repeated dream sequences in which they jump up and down in slow motion where, like, fireworks explode, you know, evocatively behind them. Yeah. It's, it's. You maybe know, it's maybe a train train going through the tunnel imagery in some yeah, ways. It's not quite that that bad or good. I wouldn't have minded though if there was some train going into tunnel imagery. <laughs> I think that's exactly what I wanted. Maybe rocket ships going off. I guess fireworks kind of get you there. I don't know. I I, I just uh, I thought I, I guess it's because that was the part, or even just having more of them together in the movie because they're in the he, beginning, and then he's the and then goal. Jo, Joe yeah Joe invites him to his party and heads off without him, and then Pee Wee kind of decides to go and then heads off on his own and it's and and then they're back together briefly at the end of the movie and you mentioned there's these dream sequences but i don't know i really like them together that it it seems a shame that that there's not more of them you know what i mean yeah i mean they have like a very sweet relationship yeah it is like it's genuinely a little heartwarming for a relationship between a you know permanent man boy and a the most rugged i mean it's that's and and there's also like a child's idea about what a very famous actor would live like. <laughs> yes. That's a good way of putting it as well. Yeah. That he has this incredible palatial apartment and. And he has his birthday party. Like, and then all of New York is celebrating his birthday. Yes. It's like a national holiday. Uh-huh. Yep. And that like everyone is at his party. It's. I don't know. They, I mean, like, yeah, I, I agree. Like those aspects are the strongest parts of the movie. It does have a lot of like rambling middle but yeah what, what did you think i mean the other sort of thread that comes through are the are the three i don't know what to call them thieves like switchblade sisters basically. well they're they're straight up ripped off from or homages to you know russ meyer's faster pussycat kill kill right, right down to how they dress and act and everything what did you did you what did you think about them i thought that they were i thought they were kind of cute i mean like i don't you know, like there's something they don't really like, ever... John Waters about. Oh, them super! There, well, John Waters you know? is like the biggest Faster Pussycat fan in the world, right? And maybe I... that's a, and, and perhaps that is all kind of tying together with the Joe Manganiello uh-huh. storyline. Yeah, but, I, I mean that's. I mean, I you know, it it was a bit rambly. As yeah, well. it doesn't quite find a really great thing to do with them, other than to put them in there, sort of again for people who know Russ Meyer and and sort of know what they're kind of getting at with them. There's there, there, I didn't find that there was a huge payoff to, to their repeated appearances. I liked them. I feel like the problem with that is that they were almost – they had, like, the beginning and end of a story packaged within a larger beginning and end of a story, mm-hmm. you know, in which Joe Manganiello is actually the love interest as opposed to Alia Shawkat's character. Right. they're like, the secondary love interest. Right. They're a bit of a – yeah, they're kind of a – the, the appendix they don't really serve a, a function they're just yes. sort of there i, I mean, agree with that's you that's i really liked i mean i kind of i liked having them as characters in this movie i and i thought 
like uh, I enjoyed the when they peewees. first showed up. I mean, the two peewees were sweet. Like yeah. I thought there was that was nice. I don't. I mean, like some of the other some of the other ones are not as successful. I feel like the farmer's the traveling daughters. salesman. Oh, the farmer's daughter one is. Yeah, I would have cut that right I know, out of the that, movie. That could go. The traveling salesman's a little. It feels like underdone. That and whole it's thing. another one that's a real direct kind of callback. All the stuff with the snakes because there's that wonderful scene in the original movie yeah. where he's saving the pet store and he hates the snakes and everything yeah which is said, an amazing it sequence is amazing. but that said it's great to hear Wee herman scream his like he screams a lot superhuman scream yeah his it, super high-pitched yeah. scream it's i mean i like that. a weird running joke there yeah i you know I, it's do i think it's like a magnificent movie no but i i liked it i guess i'm more disturbed slash fascinated by what this represents what in this terms represents. of the larger culture of nostalgia. Yes. Like, I don't really hunger for things that very accurately recreate. mimic and recreate, yeah. you know, things from my childhood. I, I mean, if you really want that, and I know nostalgia is big business these days. Huge. I mean, if you really want that, you can just go back and rewatch them. Right. It's not like Pee Wee's Big Adventure is hard to find or even dated you know what i mean it's not like the movie it doesn't hold up of time anyway yeah, yeah it's i watched it just a year or two ago for some reason and it's fabulous and it doesn't need you know you don't need a cover version you know what i mean like sure. just watch the original it's so much better at least in this case it doesn't feel like the character is stuck in some kind of horrible purgatory the way fuller house sort of seems i haven't watched any of that i i want i feel like everyone should watch the first episode of fuller house okay. just to be like what is have we done real? to these people? <laughs> Am I hallucinating? Yes. All right. Well, I'll have to. I'll have to at least watch the pilot. Haven't okay. done it yet. Yeah. All right. Well, that's Pee Wee's Big Holiday, and you can watch it now on Netflix. He's down, loaded up and trucking. Are we going to do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Time he's found just like no bandit run. Keep your foot hard on the pedal. Some never mind them brakes. Let it all hang out cause we got a run to make. The boys are thirsty in Atlanta and there's beer in Texarkana. And we'll bring it back no matter what it takes. He's pounding down, loaded up and trucking. Are we gonna do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound just watch your bandit run. All right, here's what I don't understand, Allison. I took a road trip earlier today, coming home from my in-laws okay. in Rhode Island, back home to Brooklyn. And there were no wacky misadventures. Um my wife was in the car with me. We didn't hate each other at the beginning, but grow to find a commonality and understanding over the course of the drive. Um, we didn't slowly, our car slowly didn't get destroyed piece by piece by piece <laughs> to the end where we didn't have a hood and a roof and one of the doors was like a tarp. That didn't happen. What were we missing? Because I've watched a lot of road trip movies and that's supposed to happen on every single road trip. I guess if you had like started off with some kind of, unrealistic weird goal in mind okay. we've got to get to brooklyn so if we had tried to do to... it in 45 minutes instead of the three hours or whatever that it took right or also to be like we've absolutely got to get back for this thing uh -huh. you know i think as long as you set a goal that see that then you know gives some sense of uh dramatic heft to but this. what if the goal was to come home so i could do this podcast with you 
you know what it is? I'm too accommodating. You know that I could have like pushed this a bit. If I had been like, if you don't show Sanger! up, we're done forever. This is the last podcast, singer. I'm leaving your podcast for someone else's okay. podcast. Okay, so that's what we were missing. All yeah. right, that makes sense. Yeah, because I just, I, you know, this was on my mind. I'm driving back. The baby is sleeping. Wife is looking at her phone. The dog is sleeping. I'm like, this is a lot more boring than movies have promised me that this would be. Yeah. I mean, aren't road trips always? Road trip movies, lots of fun. They're a lot of danger fun. Or danger or, you know, wacky misadventures. Actual road trips are often just a lot of driving. And what's interesting is if you go on a really long road trip, you know, because these, these movies are not just a three-hour drive. Obviously, that's another difference. They're always like, we have to get across country in three and a half days or whatever it is. It's like you said, there's an absurd goal and a, a certain amount of time, a long amount, but not long enough to do it. That if you were in on a road trip like this, let's say you were going cross country, that like the direction of your relationship would probably be from like going close to being pulled apart. By the end of it, you'd be so sick of the person. You'd not want to talk to them. You would – there'd be tons of – it's like – and in a movie, it's always the opposite. The long road trip brings people together in a very strange way. Yeah. I was thinking – now, you're reminding me this is not one of the movies I picked to talk about, but that movie Lock with Tom Hardy is yes. one of the only like – realistic uh depictions of of like driving somewhere quickly which is like lots of boring highway driving yes. you know and like worrying about traffic coming up towards like the city right and like all of the drama in that is in the phone calls he's making which are very dramatic the stakes are high sure but the actual driving itself is exquisitely boring yes. like there's nothing to look at it is entirely down like big roads through the middle of you know right through the middle of the uh, of the country yeah uh, you don't see that very often. It's not very cinematic. No. The interesting thing is th- that I was thinking of was that sort of on the flip side is I think that's a very good example of how of an opposite approach. But just how many typical road trip movies, they are kind of cinematic. And there's sort of an easy way to make a very talky movie cinematic because you insert a lot of movement and motion and visual dynamism and, you know, the scenery, the car moving. Like it's a way to make two people sitting around and talking for a whole movie kind of visually interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there are a few movies that are so openly based around two people just filling time you know and like just uh trying to kind of like ease the silences between them Uh, a few movies are as like openly talky often as right movies podcasts though they are that talky they are like this one they're incredibly talky well why don't you give us your first pick then all right my first pick is a very classically structured road trip movie you've got two mismatched dudes not friends at first they're stuck together on this uh, journey where they slowly turn from enemies to besties, and that is Tommy Boy from 1995, directed by Peter Siegel. It's available to stream right now on Netflix. And Tommy Boy is a movie that was probably one of the, I don't know, 10 to 15 movies that I owned on VHS in college. And this was the pre-Netflix, pre-even, I guess DVD existed, but I didn't have a DVD player. And it's one of those movies that I watched over and over again. And I probably hadn't seen it in maybe 10 years at least when I rewatched it recently to be interviewed for this TV series called True Inside, which is this documentary series about iconic uh, mostly movie comedies that's airing now on True TV. It's a really good show. If you haven't watched it, you should check it out. They've done a really great job in it. I'm interviewed in a bunch of the episodes. 
and that one of the episodes is about Tommy Boy. So they asked me if I would talk about it, and I said, sure, and I rewatched it. I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I was glad to see, you know, it holds up pretty well. Chris Farley stars in the movie with David Spade. Farley plays Tommy Callahan. He's, uh, let's let's call him the dim-witted son of an auto manufacturer who's played in a very, uh, sort, of, sort of very pleasant, very pleasurable, very joyful performance by Brian Dennehy. A guy who doesn't get to do a, enough comedy, I guess. He seems like he's having a lot of fun in, in that movie. And Spade plays Denny's right-hand man, and Farley and Spade hate each other, but then they have to go on a road trip selling auto parts to dealers throughout the Midwest, or the company's factory will close forever. And while I would not argue that Tommy Boy is a comic masterpiece, I do think it's better than it's given credit for. I think Sparley, Sparley, that's, that's that, you know, if, <laughs> if Chris Farley and David Spade... You know, we're lucky enough to make movies for 20, 20 years. That would have been their, like, cutesy Benefer name. They would have been Sparley, right? We would have had Absolutely. to give them a cute name. Anyway, they're very good together, and I think they're very funny putting each other down. They have perfect sort of anti-chemistry insulting one another for the whole movie. The other thing that I like about it that I really respected seeing it again now, that's certainly not something I picked up on in college, is that unlike so many Hollywood comedies, this is a it's a blue-collar movie. It's about working-class Americans, you know. Every Hollywood movie that comes out now, the comedies specifically, 20, 30-somethings, they live in New York, they live in L.A., they're hip, they're chic, they have incredible apartments they could never afford, they never work, right? Maybe they there's one scene where they're at their job, and a lot of Tommy Boy is about this auto factory, the Callahan Auto Factory, how it works, who works there, the jobs that are on the line if Tommy fails his sales trip, like – you just don't see this stuff in a lot of movies, and I found that to be kind of refreshing about it. And this is one of those movies also that we mentioned – I mentioned earlier the trope of the car that's beautiful at the beginning that gets slowly destroyed. Tommy Boy is one of the classic examples of that. David Spade's character has this like old – I don't know if it's a Chevy, whatever it is, this old classic car that he adores. And of course by the end of the movie, it's a, it's it's so junky he literally gives it away by the end of the movie. So that's just a classic road trip movie trope. And actually it kind of happens in my second pick as well, which I'll get to in a minute. <laughs> so that is Tommy Boy, which is available on Netflix. All right. Well, in my first pick – uh, the two characters are also traveling the U.S., but they are not lucky enough to have a car. In fact, they spend most of their time hitchhiking or riding the rails. Uh, it's the 1973 movie Scarecrow, which is available for rent on various places, directed by Jerry Schatzberg, uh, who also directed Panic in Needle Park. And the buddies in question here are Al Pacino as Francis and Gene Hackman, who's really maybe never been better as Max, two drifters off to see the world or rather get to Pittsburgh. Um, in the opening scene, Al Pacino just watches Gene Hackman walk across the countryside towards the road where they basically they both try and hitchhike unsuccessfully for hours and hours like gene hackman glowering uh, al pacino down from across the street until they they team up and and become better and better friends over this trip but one of the things that really marks this movie is that it's a road trip movie in which both characters have created a sense of false urgency or a destination for themselves because they have so little in their lives that are, that is kind of like that, that is, is maybe like going as they wanted it or to be under their control. Uh, Francis was married. Uh, and when his wife was pregnant, he took off. 
he decided to go see the world as a sailor instead, sent all the money back to her, but uh, he's on his way to Detroit to see his kid, who he's never met, doesn't know if it's a girl or boy, has bought a lamp as a present, thinking that's like a good gender, gender-free gender uh, present, and uh, hasn't called ahead of time to see, you know, like has, has done none of the plans that would make this seem like a serious attempt to reconcile uh, with his child, but has decided that this is what he's going to do. And Max is fresh out of jail. And has a dream of like grand dream. He talks about often of opening a car wash in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is where all of his money's been saved up in this bank. No other reason necessarily for Pittsburgh. Uh, eventually, there's another time where we meet his sister, who's in Denver, and she points out that there's no reason for him to want to do this in Pittsburgh other than that's what he decided. And so this is a road trip movie in which two people make very little reason to like need to get to the the point they're going or very little like um create very little sense of urgency that these are real plans which really i i think speaks to the the drifting spirit of it these are two characters who are 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 lost a bit and who cling to each other because they find out that they are you know they're good for each other uh francis is a goofball, uh, kind of a, a little childlike, a little innocent, though it becomes clear as the movie goes along that this is a bit of a defense mechanism and not always a successful one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he claims that making people laugh, you, no one can say mad at you if you can make them laugh. Whereas Max gets mad at people very easily and he went to jail for, for a fight he had and he gets in multiple fights throughout the movie. And, uh, you know, I think part of the reason that this movie, which won the, like the Grand Prix at Cannes in 1973, that it, it isn't considered like one of the great 70s movies is that there's definitely something reminiscent of like Midnight Cowboy to it. But I mean, that said, the there's something to the way that it, it's a movie about like two guys who you know, have made up a direction to go in and are also kind of like have made up these grand plans that are going to happen that are self-mythologizing as they go. And uh, the hollowness that lies under that and the bit of like desperation and sadness is always there. And it's transmitted through these two very good performances. Uh, And and these are two great actors obviously but they're very good together in this movie and uh it's it's a real pleasure to see them together so that is scarecrow and it is available for rent okay good pick uh i was inspired to rewatch my next pick after reading about the south by premiere of this new documentary called the bandit did you hear about this film allison I did not it's called the bandit and it's about burt reynolds and hal needham and their friendship and the making of my next pick the road trip comedy classic Smokey and the Bandit, which is available for rent. Unlike Tommy Boy, this is not a road trip movie about mismatched buddies, as so many of them are. I suppose you might qualify this as a chase movie and not a road trip movie. I don't know how we necessarily differentiate between the two. I guess a chase movie would automatically be a road trip movie, but a road trip movie doesn't automatically have to be a chase. You can have a road trip without a chase. Tommy Boy doesn't have a chase. No one's chasing them, I guess, other than the specter of economic devastation. (laughs) Uh, There are plenty of buddies in the movie. They're just not necessarily mismatched. And interestingly, that's part of what I think makes Smokey and the Bandit so special. It skips the part where you create this artificial tension. Like, we have to find a reason for the buddies not to get along, so then over the course of the movie, there's drama, and then they do get along, and we enjoy that. Like, this 
movie just dispenses with all of that. It's just they're just going to have fun. The movie's just going to be fun. People are going to get along, and we're just going to enjoy it. There's like two sets of friends. The first is the bandit, played by Burt Reynolds, and his partner, Snowman, played by Jerry Reed. They take on this bet that they can drive from Atlanta to Texarkana and back, bringing 400 cases of cores in 28 hours. There's that uh, artificial deadline you were mentioning. And while they're on the road, uh, Bandit is in his car and Snowman is trailing with the truck with all the beer. Um, While they're on the road, they pick up this hitchhiking runaway bride, played by Sally Field, who immediately hits it off with the Bandit. And that's the second friendship and sort of the romantic couple eventually. And the two of them are just flirting back and forth. They're passing these rapid-fire jokes, put-downs. It's almost like an old-fashioned screwball comedy set in a Trans Am going 110 miles an hour through the South. There is some drama. They, they have to get back to Atlanta to win the bet. And then there's also this crazy sheriff, Buford T. Justice, played by Jackie Gleason, who is chasing after Sally Field because she's – left his son at the altar. They don't even know about the beer aspect. But there's not a lot of tension in either of these uh, either of these plots. And really, the outcome is not in doubt. Uh, I, I, you know, watching it again, Burt Reynolds and Sally Field, I don't even know if technically they're playing characters. They have names, <laughs> but they're basically playing Burt Reynolds and Sally Field, who are a couple, and they're just kind of being flirty with each other. And it's... That's fine by me. I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm saying this as a positive of the movie. They're just hanging out, cracking jokes. And we just feel – it's just like you're lucky enough to be along for this road trip with them. you know. And again, the outcome not being in doubt. I was thinking watching it, like are there any road trip movies where the outcome actually does feel in doubt? Not that many. That in some ways the road trip is, is a, a particularly formulaic genre. right? We're not watching it to find out if they make it. Are they going to make it? Because they almost always make it. Maybe, you know, I was thinking maybe some 70s movies when uh, every 70 movie was a bummer, right? And they're all ending. <laughs> so like something like Vanishing Point, if you want to call that a road trip movie, you know, you might be able to find an example. But by and large, no. As the expression goes, it's not about the destination, man. It's about the journey. And I think Smoking the Bandit is one of the most purely pleasurable journeys in all of movies. It just makes you smile. It, ma- it makes me smile anyway. It's just a pleasant time it's a great way to uh, pass an hour and a half i've i've seen it a bunch of times and i didn't even really watch it as a kid it's not a movie i really necessarily grew up with like people who are maybe five ten years older than us definitely did but if you've never seen it and i don't i don't know it's not a movie that's like when we were kids i feel like the kids before us talked about Smokey and the bandit and i don't know that it's endured in quite the way you know it was like the number two movie of the year it came out after star wars it, but it hasn't quite uh, endured the way Star Wars has. Um, I, don't, I don't see them making Smokey and the Bandit, The Bandit Reawakens anytime soon. No, but I can see them just remaking the movie. They might. I mean, they might. We'll, we'll see. Uh, if you never watched it, it is available for rent. It's a, it still holds up. It's a, really, it's a really fun movie, Smokey and the Bandit. All right. Well, my, my second pick is a – it's a – buddy road trip movie that gets interrupted by a sociopath basically i hate when that happens yeah you know really just ruins the trip it is the hitchhiker uh which is available for streaming on amazon prime this is a 1953 noir that's directed by ida lupino who was an actress who became like one of the pioneering female directors in the studio system this is in fact uh, it's considered the first uh like big film noir to be directed by a woman and it's based on a true story 
of Billy Cook, who murdered people while hitchhiking. And uh, the bad guy in this one is a hitchhiker who we see uh, has killed people in the beginning. And this like very like kind of wonderfully done, extremely efficient intro, which there's no dialogue and that we see that there's this murderous killer, you know, on the loose in the country. Uh, but unfortunately, the two men who are on a fishing trip, they're played by Edmund O'Brien and Frank Lovejoy. Uh, they do not know that 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 is where uh, that that is happening. Uh, they're just two guys, two middle-aged guys who uh, have left their wife wives behind to go on this trip, uh, and to also maybe get into get up to some trouble. I, I think one of the nice elements of this movie is that they're just you know two like middle-class guys who uh, they think they want to go blow off some steam. They go down to Mexico. Uh, and then they stop by a town where where their um, people tell them, "Oh, come in to see this show, this fan dance with a beautiful woman." And one of the guys whose idea it was basically uh, pretends to be asleep so that they keep driving. So, guys, trip to go to get into trouble that none of neither of them actually wants to get into. Unfortunately, they stop for a guy who seems to be out of gas on the road. Uh, and he's a, a, the hitchhiker who's played by William Talman, who is great. He's got this droopy eye. Uh, he's, uh, you know, like arrogant and just sadistic. And, uh, you know, he gets into the car and you don't see his face. And then as they're driving him to go get gas, he like leans into the light in true film noir fashion and has a gun. And he takes them on this trip down through Baja, California and one of the neat things about this movie is the ways is the way in which it's both like these huge wide open spaces in Baja California and this very like desert like area where they're often alone on the road uh, and yet it's extremely claustrophobic it's three men in the car one of whom has the gun and who keeps like jabbing at these other two men and keeps like testing them it's not just that the the hitchhiker wants to get away it's that he he really likes making one of the men like hold up a can and like make the other man shoot it out of his hand, you know, it, and it becomes sort of like a, a reverse buddy, a buddy, buddy road trip movie in that it's about someone who is, who is like trying to set these two men or like kind of break their friendship in some ways, uh, trying to, to get them as they like, they, they disagree while trying to figure out what to do and how to get away over multiple days. Uh, it's like he's testing them and their resolve versus his every man for himself uh, kind of appeal. It's really, it's, it's a very well-directed movie. It's only 70 minutes long. It's very condensed, but it, it, it really nicely introduces two guys who emerge as like very distinct characters um, who are really just unexciting, you know, like family men who find themselves uh, trying to deal with a psychopathic killer uh, on like basically the world's worst camping trip. Um, so, uh, and it's, it's, it's one of those noirs that I don't think is talked about as much, but it's definitely worth a look, uh, especially since it is streaming on Amazon prime. That is the hitchhiker. All right. Singer and Wilmore's completely concise, totally succinct new release roundup BVS colon DOJ. That's what you just called it before we started rolling. Is I that did. how the people, the cool people at your office refer to it? Uh, it's just how That's I, how you refer to it. That's how I refer to it. I go, Boobs Dodge. It's catchy. Boobs Dodge. Yeah. So what did you think of Boobs Dodge? I thought it was a pretty aggressively dour movie that substituted 
extreme self-seriousness with thematic depth. And it really wasn't that fun to watch. But I've had a lot of fun talking about it mm-hmm. over the last few days. I mean, it's it's certainly become a punching bag of sorts for critics while making giant amounts of money at the box office. I don't know that like the divide between uh, you know audience success and critical reaction has ever felt quite so stark to me. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's a very good movie. How about you? I, I was not a, a Batman v Superman fan. Uh, I think there are some interesting things in it. There are some things I liked. And if nothing else, and there's not much else, it made me excited to see the Gal Gadot Wonder Woman movie. I think sure. she's she doesn't have anything to do in the movie. She literally serves no purpose. But well, she, of course she does. She has to watch the trailers for the next <laughs> movie. <laughs> she like watches the, them in the movie. It is. The, it might be the first time in history where a character on screen actually watches the post credit scene for their movie in the actual movie during the actual movie. Yes. These little videos of the characters in the Justice League who will appear eventually. Hopefully, I mean, the movie has made a lot of money, so they they probably will make it. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt. Right. Um, The path is... Whether we want it or not, it's coming. So, yeah. Other than that, though, she serves no function, no useful function. Despite that, I thought she was charismatic, beautiful, powerful, mysterious. Everyone in the movie is talking. They never shut up about nothing. They're talking about garbage. It's like... God, God and, and man uh-huh. and death and yes and all these hoity-toity things that don't really add up to anything and explaining themselves and you know there's a surprisingly inert movie for a giant probably 250 million dollar blockbuster there's not a lot of action until the and last for, for half a movie hour that promises the, a fight that right. is like you know in its the title, title is, is a fight the fight yeah, yeah it, it takes a very long time to get there that in a in this movie where everyone else is yak yak yakking, I I found her very refreshing. This woman who's just wa- like, what is her deal? What is she doing? Uh, why is she doing it? And I, I was even I was if, intrigued. Yes, even if her even the reason she's in the movie is so stupid, makes no sense at all. Right? I, she she like won me over when in the middle of a big fight she like grins. Oh yeah, she's, she's having like, fun. Over. She's the only she's person the in the only movie having fun. In the movie having Absolutely. Fun. I mean, yes. it's another way where she is, separates herself from everyone else in the movie is yeah. that she has a smile on her face at one point. I will, is that sad? It is sad. I don't know. I will say I, I feel like Zack Schneider has managed something that is a, a, a kind of weird achievement in a superhero movie, which is to make like your two iconic superheroes like both kind of scary and unlikable Mm. you know somehow batman you know is is supposed to be kind of anti-heroic certainly has like been different variations of very malleable character but i he's so he's this kind of fascist sociopath who brands people in this movie yeah uh and and gets and, and gets angry for like very lousy reasons frankly yes uh and then and then superman in this movie the characterization is very strange like he's like a sulky very sulky very mopey i started to wonder is because you know the movie i think what is could have been interesting the movie is i think the way i put it in my review it's like it's a sequel to man of steel and also an adaptation of the reaction to man of steel where you know a lot of people complained myself included that that ending fight in man of steel all of these people we don't see are dying everywhere and the movie sort of pretends that there that there aren't like 
thousands upon thousands of, of, of people dying as buildings are falling all through Metropolis, and Superman doesn't seem to care. He doesn't react. Like, all he cares about is this big fight with General Zod, and it's just it just seems sort of callous and out of character. And so the movie, this movie, Batman vs. Superman, opens with Bruce Wayne on the ground in Metropolis. It's the best scene in the movie, I Absolutely. Think. Yeah. Right, and it gives, I think it gives a potentially good reason to make this the conflict, is that Bruce Wayne witnesses um superman not doing anything and essentially killing his co- his his employees yeah i mean that is a good reason to make the movie right the problem i find is that ultimately like you're saying this batman has no moral high ground he's a killer he's homicidal right and again that doesn't necessarily I, i'm not saying that batman can't kill people in a movie it just seems strange that his 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 uh, like the whole reason for the movie is you killed people I will all show you how to kill. It almost seems like he's jealous of Superman. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the thing is like for all of this movie raises like large ideas about like the right to who is the right to be like dispense justice and like right. all of this, that it becomes about two guys who are like mad at each other for right. like who, who gets to do like superheroism the right way. Right. You know? But they have the same approach. That's the thing. It's yes. like, there's no, there's no philosophical difference. I feel like if Batman in the movie was like actually more principled than Superman, and taught him how to be a hero, that could be kind of interesting. Right. Instead, this movie offers a world in which superheroes are this almost oppressive reality that people just will have to live with. Yes. You know, like which one... might actually be true. Yes. It, I know. It feels weirdly like the multiplex. <laughs> anyway, uh, that, there you go. Batman. We BBS. could probably talk about it for a while. You're D-O-J. right. It's fun to talk about. It's not very fun to watch. No. Um, do you know what is fun to watch, though? What, Allison? Everybody wants some exclamation point, exclamation point. Great um, segue. Yeah. Uh, the new Richard Linklater movie, which is opening in limited release uh, this week, is his spiritual sequel, quote unquote, to uh, Dazed and Confused, which is my favorite Richard Linklater movie. None of the characters are from Dazed and Confused. It just happens to take place four years after when, uh, you know, Mitch, the character played by Wiley Wiggins, would be going to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about how great it is to be a star baseball player in college in Texas in 1980. The end. That's, yeah, pretty yeah. much. Surprisingly delightful, given that this is maybe one of the broiest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> it is aggressively broy. I will say that I had an interesting, what I felt was a pretty interesting and unique reaction to it. Not that I'm unique, but just that I felt what the movie was going for it was almost that the opening of the movie is, I found, like, aggressively off-putting because it's so broy. Like, I don't like these guys. They're jerks. Yeah, They're they, macho. They, they, They're they, mean. They d- talk about women just as, like, yeah. in, the, they talk about <laughs> They talk about gobblers they make jokes about you know like they do all of the things that you you like negative associations with like swaggering like jock guys in in college especially i'm gonna bleep both of the things you just said and i i can't wait to what the audience is gonna try to have to figure out what you said (laughs) and it's gonna be fun but anyway like it opens in this fashion where you're just like this is not i don't like enjoy these characters it's like getting back to mr ben affleck again it's like it's like if dazed and confused was about like the obnoxious ben affleck character absolutely following him instead of following wiley wiggins and then this fascinating thing happens where you spend more and more time with these characters and suddenly you grow and you grow to love them and i felt like he's making a movie basically about hazing and he found a way to haze the audience where you have to kind of endure their obnoxiousness but if you get through it you're like a member of the team and you just never want to leave and you just want the good times to keep on rolling. And I just thought it was like it's a very deceptively simple movie. But like the way he does that, I thought was brilliant. 
Yeah, and I think it also it shows the way in which you can be both where like hyper competitive arrogance comes from for guys in this situation, but also how the the year starts and it all gets channeled into competing against other teams and right. like kind of diffuses. You know, mm-hmm. they as much as say it. And it's just, it's also, it's a hangout comedy. And like very few people do hangout comedies and enjoy hanging out as a thing that happens as much as Richard Linklater. Because we're talking about them together, I'm putting them together in my mind. And it's like, there are some similarities with Batman versus Superman in terms of that macho-ness and the male competitiveness. And who's the alpha male, And who gets to be in charge. Yeah. Yes. And There's a hilarious character played by Tyler Hecklin in... Uh, in Everybody Wants Some, who is like the best baseball player on the team. Oh, you mean the guy who looks like Michael Tully? Yes, who looks like Michael Tully. Yeah. Our friend Michael Tully. Um, but who just like shamelessly like grinds down every other guy, all the new people. Right. Like, and just like he breaks them down psychologically. Constantly like just keeps proving his dominance like in, in different ways. And it should be awful. And you feel like he's kind of a, he's kind of a jerk. But then Absolutely. also you really like him after he's, a while. And he's also very good at he's, right. He's exactly. actually very he's talented. Really good at baseball. But my point being just that like you can make a movie about those things, but make it pleasant and fun and everybody wants some is is the uh, proof of that. Yeah. Anyway, let's get on to uh, behind the eight ball. Countdown, three new releases. We give you two lesson recommendations and one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists. This is how we wrap up the show every week. Uh, Allison, do you want me to go first? Or you want me to go first? I want to go first. All right. Well, then why don't you start off with some new releases on streaming? All right. First up, new to Netflix is one of the most acclaimed films from last year. That is The Assassin, Ho Xiaoshen's uh, martial, I think I called it on Twitter, martial arts art film. Calling it a martial arts film, I think, is a little misleading since it has actually very little... Uh, in terms of actual martial arts, but it is about a character uh, who is an assassin, played by mm-hmm. Shu Qi, who uh, is sent back to the place uh, in which she grew up, and this is all in 8th century China, to kill the man she was once supposed to marry. It is, like, sumptuously beautiful. Uh, it is also, I think, for me, I found it to be more emotionally opaque than I usually find Ho Shen's films. Uh, and it's one that I'm very interested to take another look at because of that first viewing. But that now I can because it is on Netflix. Uh, also new to Netflix is Documentary Now. Uh, this is the comedy series on IFC, our former employers. Um, it was created by Fred Armisen, Bill Hader, Seth Meyers, and Reese Thomas. And stars Fred Armisen and Bill Hader in various uh, episodes mocking documentaries. A very like uh, specific and uh, endearingly niche type of comedy, but one that's pulled off like very well. Um, it starts off with an episode that mocks Grey Gardens and goes from like mocking Grey Gardens into it sags into another genre that I will not spoil, but it's a kind of delightful surprise. Uh, the episode that is a parody of the Thin Blue Line, fantastic. And ends with a two-part one that is a, a basically about uh, the big doc that was made on the Eagles. It is a parody of that, uh, and it is uh, the best part of the series. And also, bonus points, Helen Mirren serves as the person introducing each episode, as if it is a long-running PBS show. Documentary Now on Netflix. And finally, new to Hulu, and I haven't checked this out yet, but is The Path. Um, This is Hulu's first hour-long drama, their attempt to get a prestige drama. Um, And it is about a cult uh, and stars Aaron Paul of Breaking Bad, Michelle Monaghan, and Hugh Dancy, created by playwright Jessica Goldberg. I 
I'm always intrigued by um, by anything about cults, but also I'm very interested to see if Hulu can pull off having uh, the type of show that basically all networks want mm-hmm. still at the moment, which is the the award winning much talked about drama so i believe that starts on march 30th all right how about two listener recommendations okay first up we have one from neva i hope that's how you pronounce that uh who recommends my beautiful broken brain writing it's a new documentary on netflix about a young woman who must relearn words and language after a severe stroke as a result of the stroke she also must learn to live in her new reality that as a result of the stroke is filled with colorful hallucinations and the constant feeling that she's living in a david lynch film Produced by Lynch himself, the film is an interesting exploration into how, who we are and what reality is all depends on our fragile little brains. Um, and yeah, that's a Netflix original doc. It's one I just recently added to my my list. I'm interested in checking it out. Thank you for that recommendation. And our second recommendation is from Thomas in Chicago, who writes... It's not been discussed already. I'd like to recommend The Last Wave, Peter Weir's 1977 supernatural thriller about a lawyer in Sydney, Australia named David Burton, who defends a group of Aborigines accused of murder. As strange weather phenomena beset the city, David is plagued by bizarre dreams and a feeling of mystical connection to the Aborigines. Upon learning about their concept of dream time, David begins to suspect his own dreams are are actually premonitions of a coming apocalypse, and his professional and personal lives begin to unravel as he becomes obsessed with learning the truth. While the last wave includes some fantastically eerie dream sequences, even its more grounded scenes are laced with a sense of creeping dread, which builds to a chilling conclusion. I was actually inspired to rewatch this film by recent discussions of The Witch on both Filmspotting Original Recipe and the Next Picture Show podcast. Central to these discussions is the question of how audiences define scary movies. Must we be made to jump in our seats or is it a strong, is a strong feeling of dread, creeping dread enough? Um, and he recommends uh, a few other movies to have as a Creeping Dread-themed podcast, which I think is an interesting idea we should hold on to, but uh, it throws into that category Don't Look Now, The Wicker Man, and Jeff Nichols' Take Shelter, uh, which Thomas points out is arguably an attempt at remaking The Last Wave. It's an interesting theme, Hmm. and one we will definitely keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Last Wave is an underseen gem currently streaming on Hulu Plus and available for rent on Amazon. Thank you, Thomas. Okay, and one film chosen blindly by number from your... Okay, you gave me number six. (laughs) Number six is 10,000 Saints. Uh, This came out, I believe, last year... uh, did the festival circuit and everything. It's uh, about a boy named Jude who goes from living in small town Vermont to uh, being sent to live with his dad in punk rock New York Mm. uh, in the East Village and kind of tries to figure out a place within basically this straight edge punk rock scene specifically. Okay. And uh, this movie is based on an acclaimed novel that's been sitting on my shelf forever that I really want to read uh, and is directed by uh, Sherry Springer Berman and oh. Robert Pulcini who directed American, American Splendor. Splendor. Yeah, and has a great cast. Ethan Hawke as a dad, Asa Butterfield as the the boy, Emily Mortimer, Julianne Nicholson, Haley Steinfeld. It's a great cast. Neil Hirsch. Yeah. I really even heard. I don't think I've heard of this You know, movie. I don't, it didn't get like, I think it got very like mixed reviews but you know it's also like i don't think you see a lot of punk rock coming of age films and i you know that era in in new york downtown new york is maybe like an overly romanticized one but Mm -hmm. one i i I really want to see more good films take on so that's one i added to my my list you know it kind of flickered by in its theatrical release but now it is on netflix 
All right, Matt, are you ready? Sure. Okay, three new releases. First up, the fascinating documentary Finders Keepers about the battle between two men over a severed leg found inside a barbecue. Uh, it begins as this very outlandish portrait of two eccentrics. It's almost like a real-life Christopher Guest movie. But then it grows a lot deeper until it's kind of this sad Almost beautiful portrait of these two unique and frustrated individuals. It's a funny movie, but it also has a lot of humanity and heart. I think it's one that a lot of people will enjoy. That's Finders Keepers. It's available now on Netflix. Next up, new to Amazon Prime, we mentioned it just a few minutes ago, Dazed and Confused, Richard Linklater's classic coming-of-age comedy. Uh, It is uh, the spiritual prequel i guess i don't know what to call it but you know we, we were talking about it you've got everybody wants them coming to theaters and so if you haven't seen dazed and confused i can't imagine why but if you haven't now would be a wonderful time to watch it in anticipation of everybody wants some they'd be a great double feature i'm sure and you can watch Days and confused on amazon prime finally also new to amazon prime is the unusual biopic the end of the tour this movie stars jason siegel as famed author david foster wallace with jesse eisenberg as david lipsky who spent a few weeks with Wallace uh, for a Rolling Stone profile that was never published. But then after David Foster Wallace's death, Lipsky turned the transcripts into a book. And then the book was adapted into this film about their time together on the book tour for Infinite Jest. I know there before the movie came out, you know, when it was on the festival circuit, oh, this is a, you know, maybe Jason Siegel's going to win an Oscar and nominated for an Oscar. It didn't really happen. But I still think it's a, it's a very good movie with a, a pair of very strong lead performances and an excellent feel for the dynamics of the relationship between interviewer and subject. So that is the end of the tour available on Amazon Prime. All right, two listener recommendations. Our first one comes from Caitlin in Norman, Oklahoma. Caitlin writes, I recently watched Perfect Sense on Netflix, and it was a totally surprising film that I've never heard anyone talk about. From the title, I assumed it would be a rom-com. Boy, was I wrong. It might have some flaws and could never actually happen, but the concept and creativity of this film stuck with me for days. Basically, this shows the end of the world, which happens uh, with all humans losing their senses one by one, which is often reflected in the way this is filmed, i.e. the visuals and the sound. Human resilience and enduring love are some of the main themes, and for anyone who is a chef or loves the culinary arts, there are some very interesting and super creative themes involving that, too. I would highly recommend you check it out. It is streaming now on Netflix. That's Perfect Sense, and that is a recommendation from Caitlin in Norman, Oklahoma. Thank you, Caitlin. Next up, we have a recommendation from Cindy in Belchertown, Massachusetts. Cindy writes, I'd like to recommend something a little different. I've been thoroughly enjoying the YouTube channel Every Frame a Painting which has given me a superb education in understanding and appreciating how a director shapes his or her films. The channel features 25 video essays by Tony Zhu that illustrate an aspect of scene analysis, such as ensemble staging or the use of motion in the films of Akira Kurosawa. With essays ranging from three to nine minutes in length, you can and probably will binge watch them all. Some of the essays contain spoilers, but the viewer is always given ample warning. Since each video essay is a short film itself, I hope this qualifies as an allowable listener recommendation. It does! And I hope listeners interested in the art of filmmaking enjoy every frame of painting on YouTube as much as I do. That's a recommendation from Cindy in Belchertown, Massachusetts. And the YouTube channel is Every Frame a Painting. Thank you, Cindy. All right. And one from your My List. 
you gave me number two on my my list, and right now that is House of Cards with Kevin Spacey as the President of the United States, Robin Wright as the First Lady. The latest season is the fourth season. We actually reviewed each of the first three seasons on the show (laughs) on SVU episodes 28, 54, and 81, if you'd like to go back and listen to those. I know neither of us was a big fan of season three. Right. That is why we did not review season four. But uh, I have to say, I don't know if you've been watching it, Allison. Um, My wife and I are slowly working our ways through it. We're only up to episode seven out of, I guess, 13. But it might be my favorite season of the whole show. Wow. It is very tawdry and silly. It's way over the top at this point. And I think that's for the best, actually. And what's funny is it picked the perfect time to go crazy over the top with political presidential politics because in a way not only is it the craziest season and the most ridiculous it's the most accurate in in this weird way they managed to capture the zeitgeist of what is going on in the 2016 presidential campaign like nothing on the show would be surprising to me even though two years ago everything on the show would have seemed completely surprising to me they've really uh nailed uh, the tone of the the national mood right now, and I give them a lot of credit. And Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright are still fantastic. And it's I just think it they've completely uh they found their footing. Season three was I thought we both disliked. And if you gave up after season three, I would say you might want to try season four because it's a lot of fun. So that's House of Cards on Netflix. Allison, let's get to our listeners' choice options. We've got three relatively new films. We've mentioned a few of them already on the show, but not option number one necessarily. What is option number one? Well, option number one is a film that recently had its premiere at the South by Southwest Film Festival, and then it's going straight straight to Netflix in a move that's probably going to become more common uh, these days, the more we see them. It is a movie called Hush. It is a horror film directed by Mike Flanagan who did Oculus, a very well-regarded recent horror film. He did that movie Absentia, which I believe I recommended back on episode number 71, where we talked about indie horror films, and was an indie horror film that I I thought was very good on a very limited budget. Uh, This is another film from uh, Blumhouse Productions, from uh, producer Jason Blum, who is basically dominating kind of budget horror these days, uh, and is like a lot of the the Blumhouse films like it is one that deliberately chooses a, a kind of like limited uh, scenario in this case it's a woman who is being stalked in her house uh, the twist being that she's deaf and the film tries to you know get inside her experiences and also how that can make her you know uh, vulnerable in ways to someone who is wandering around probably possibly doing nefarious things uh the cast includes katie siegel and john gallagher jr Mm. so that's going to be on netflix on april 8th which will give us some time to watch it and talk about it in the episode but you know we figured a movie uh from a director whose other works have gone to the big screen recently who's directing uh ouija 2 can't wait for that one (laughs) Uh, but that uh, this will be going straight to Netflix. So that's option number one, Hush. Okay, option number two, I think, was one of Allison's uh, behind-the-eight-ball picks. It is The Assassin, the new film from Ho Xiao Shen, which is currently available on Netflix. She talked about it, but I'll read you the plot description. A young woman kidnapped as a child and trained as an assassin faces a test of her loyalty when she is ordered to kill her cousin 
as Allison said, it's a martial arts film, but a kind of an unusual one. Not a lot of fight scenes. The emphasis is much more on stillness and beauty than kinetic excitement. But there's a lot to talk about. It's a very interesting movie. It's a very beautiful movie. So certainly would be an excellent option. That is option number two, The Assassin, available on Netflix. And option number three is another movie that we've mentioned earlier. Uh, it is The Invitation, Karen Kusama's new movie. Here is the official, uh, the f- official description. In this taut psychological thriller, the tension is palpable when Will shows up to his ex-wife Eden and new husband David's dinner party. The pair's tragic past haunts an equally spooky present. Amid Eden's suspicious behavior and her mysterious house guests, Will becomes convinced that his invitation was extended with a hidden agenda. Unfolding over one dark evening in the Hollywood Hills, the invitation blurs layers of mounting paranoia, mystery, and horror until both Will and the audience are unsure what threats are real or imagined. Uh, So that is going to be available for rent on April 8th, and I believe it's going to be in theaters maybe the week before. So uh, that is one that, you know, you'll be able to see in either. That is The Invitation. All right. Which movie should we review on the next episode of Filmspotting SVU? You can send your pick to SVU at FilmspottingSVU.com or just enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at FilmspottingSVU.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, April 4th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And then you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be out around Tuesday, April 12th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive going back quite a bit now, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and the occasional TV show that we discuss on the show. Uh, the Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore and Matt is at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. It's where we announce the winner of each episode's listener's choice and where we share more new things that are new to streaming from you, the SVU listeners, and from me as I incessantly troll various sites looking for what's good. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>